Well, good afternoon, brethren. It's a privilege to be here with you on this first Sabbath after the feast. It's been encouraging to hear people's comments, the very positive comments about the experiences that they've had at the feast. I started out in uh, Panama City, Florida. We had about 900 people there, a very beautiful sight. Then went to uh, Jamaica for the last part of the feast where part of my family was. Very interesting the way the feast started in both uh, Panama City and Jamaica. It started out with rain for the first day, first evening and first day. And, you know, I think it was a very positive way to start because it kept us focused on the spiritual as opposed to running around and getting involved with the physical. And I think God had a hand in that. But both the sites ended up uh, very positive. Had about 900 in Panama City, about 300 or so in Jamaica. We stayed over a couple of days after the feast in Jamaica. We did a little tour up into the central part of the country where it was a lot of hills and mountains, uh, very green. We visited a coffee plantation that was uh, started by an Englishman back in the 1850s. And the name of the little plantation was um, <clears throat> Croydon in the Mountains. Croydon in the Mountains. The congregation we had in London was in Croydon. <laughs> so it was interesting to be in Jamaica and to run into that very English name. <clears throat> we had a, a driver that drove us up uh, in a bus to the, uh, the coffee plantation. He was quite a character. He had some interesting comments. Uh, when you're in Jamaica, they have some very interesting phrases that they use. They have these speed bumps that go across the road that they call sleeping policemen. So you've got to slow down. I remember years ago when we were there, you drive into a gas station, have this big sign, no naked lights, no open flames, <laughs> no matches, or no cigarette lighters around a gas pump. Uh, we drove by a, uh, a cemetery, and the driver says, on your left we have an underground hotel. <laughs> you have to pay to get in, but you can't get out. And then we drove by the police station. He says, we call that the free hotel, where you can spend the night free of charge. And then we drove by a Kentucky Fried Chicken. He said, you know what we call KFC down here? Keep the fat coming. <laughs> it's just interesting traveling because you get a little bit different perspectives wherever you go. <clears throat> Brethren, we've just finished observing the fall holy days, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the last great day. These four holy days in the fall all come within about a three-week period, which kind of indicates these things are going to begin to happen all together. Now, the last great day is going to come a thousand years later. But Trumpets, Atonement, and the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles are going to come suddenly when many people are not expecting these things to happen. As we understand the Feast of Trumpets pictures, the, the next major event in God's prophesied plan of salvation, you know, the first three holy days have already taken place, their history, the Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, and then Pentecost. But the next thing that's going to happen prophetically is going to be the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. He's going to come back in power 
and in glory at the sound of a trumpet that's going to rock the world. And he's going to rule the world as king of kings and lord of lords. This is what is coming, the very next prophesied event. And he's going to bring peace to this earth. He's going to bring justice to this earth. And he's going to restore this earth to the beauty that it is capable of. And as we're told in the scriptures, the saints are going to rule with him as kings and priests. That's your future. That's my future. That's what the Bible outlines as the future for Christians. But I'd like you to ask, I'd like to ask you and I'd like you to think about some things this afternoon. How real are these ideas to you? Are these just pipe dreams? Or are these something, these ideas, something that you are focused on, that you're eagerly anticipating, that you want to be part of, and that you're busily preparing for? Or is it just, well, yeah, I know that stuff. How focused are you on these things? How does all of this relate to you? And how does it relate to what you're going to be doing over the next 12 months? until we experience and keep these fall holy days again. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 14. I'd like you to read this with me. John 14, the first couple of verses. We go through this every year at the Passover. We've got about six months until the Passover. And we need to be thinking about these things as we move through the winter and prepare for the spring holy days that will be coming about six months from now. Jesus told his disciples on the night before he was crucified, he wanted them to think about some things. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, there are many rooms, there are many positions there. And if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, for you. He was telling his disciples, but these words are there for us also. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I want you to be with me when I come back to this earth to set up the kingdom of God on this earth. Jesus Christ is preparing a place for you and for me. Whether you're an older person, whether you're a younger person, there are crowns reserved there for you and for me. This is what Jesus Christ is doing right now. He's working with each one of us to mold us and fashion us, help us to be learning the lessons that we're going to need to fulfill the roles that he wants us to fill and that he's preparing us to fill. That's what he's doing for us. My question to you this afternoon is, what are you doing to prepare for the roles that you are going to play in the coming kingdom of God? What can you be doing over the next six months to a year to get ready for Jesus Christ's return and to reign with him in the coming kingdom of God. This afternoon, I want to talk about some things that we can be doing to prepare for the return of Jesus Christ, because it may come sooner than you and I are ready for it. 
It may come sooner than we're expecting. We'll have to watch and see. I've entitled the sermon, Watch and Get Ready. Watch and Get Ready. The second coming is going to be the most important event in the history of human civilization. We are living at a point in time where we're anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. It's going to be a turning point in the history of the world. And we're living during this period of time. Things are going to change in a big way. Satan is going to be bound. The kingdom of God is going to be set up on this earth. You're going to have a chance to, to change the world. What would you like to change? Where would you like to start? What can you do to get ready? The Feast of Trumpets pictures the pivotal point in the plan of God. There'd be three holy days before, three holy days after. But the Feast of Trumpets pictures a turning point, a pivot point, when Christ is going to return and things are going to change. What do we need to be watching for in the months just ahead so we don't get caught up in worldly things and get caught by surprise? You'd hate to be (laughs) out at football games or something like that when the trumpets blows on Friday night. You think, what am I doing here? (laughs) I should have been ready. But the Bible tells us many people are not going to be ready when Christ returns. They're going to be taken by surprise. They'll be sleeping. They'll be caught up in the cares of this world. They'll be misled by various teachers. We don't want to be caught up in those things. What can we be doing now to prepare for the return of Jesus Christ? You know, Jesus' disciples ask him these very same questions. We're going to review some of this very quickly. But he had told his disciples, you're going to be over the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to have thrones to sit on. And they were anxious. And they were excited. When when, when is this going to happen? (laughs) When When do we get our crowns? When do we get our jobs? And they asked him in Matthew 24, verse 3, They say, what is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Not the end of the world, but the end of the age, the end of the 6,000-year period that God has allowed and allotted to human beings to do whatever they want, figure out their own governments, try whatever they want, try their own religions. But that's going to come to an end. So they were asking him, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's interesting. Jesus went through a whole list of events. He didn't duck the question. He didn't say, oh, just give your hearts to me and don't worry about anything. You know, you don't know when I'm going to be back. He said, you watch for this, watch for this, watch for this, watch for this and this. And when you see these things coming together, you'll know that my return is near. Now, you can read about other aspects of this in Mark 13, Luke 21, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Paul talks about these things. Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 13, Revelation 17 and 18, and even back in Daniel chapter 2. Chapter 7 and 8 and 11. 
I heard a sermon given by a, a friend in another organization. And he was asked about prophecy. And he said, you know, the New Testament really doesn't have a lot of prophecy in it. I almost dropped my teeth. I thought, what, what, what are you talking about? You know better than that. What is Matthew 24? The whole chapter. Mark 13, the whole chapter. Luke 21, the whole chapter. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 2. Revelation, the whole book. That's a lot of prophecy in the New Testament. And yet this fellow was given a Bible study. and Well, there's just not much prophecy in the New Testament. Something missing. Elevator's not going to the top floor. (laughs) But he should know better. And yet he was telling that to people. If you've not gone through those chapters, you might want to do that from time to time to keep these things in mind. Because Jesus gave us a list of things to watch for. In Matthew 24, beginning in verse 4, he says, Jesus answered. Here's his answer. Take heed, be alert, be be aware. Don't let anybody deceive you. And we've got self-appointed apostles and self-appointed prophets and self-appointed teachers. They're all over the Internet. And they've got all kinds of things to tell you. But Jesus said, don't be, dis- don't be misled. He said, many will come in my name, claiming to be ministers, claiming to be representatives of Jesus Christ, claiming to be teachers, claiming I'm the Christ, and, I, and, may de- and they will deceive many, he said. So these are things we need to be alert to. In Matthew 24, verse 24, maybe just look across the page or down the page, depending on your Bible. It says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Back in 1994, 1995, I was speaking in a church congregation near uh, Big Sandy. And uh, I called the minister before I went in, and I said, I don't buy all this new stuff that's coming out of Pasadena. I said, I just wanted to find out where you are coming from before I come in and speak in your congregation. He said, well, I don't buy it either. I said, good. So I gave a sermon. I was very open about some things. I remember one fellow was sitting about five or six rows back right in the middle, and I was going through some things like this about watch, be alert, keep your eyes open. And he came up afterwards and says, do you think it's possible for the very elect to be deceived? I said, yes. If you're not watching, if you're not alert, he said, boy, I'm going to stay real close to Mr. Dukach. He missed everything I was trying to say. He was trying to be loyal. But he missed everything that I was saying, unfortunately. But Jesus said, we've got to watch. We've got to be alert because many will come in my name and deceive many. So we've got to be alert to what we buy into. If you have not proven what the Bible actually says, please take the time to prove these things. And if you have questions about various issues, ask the questions. I always told my class there is no such thing as a stupid question. There's no such thing as a stupid question. It's stupid if you don't ask it. (laughs) 
You're being stupid if you don't ask it. You need to ask and get things cleared up. You need to prove things. Is the church on target with what is teaching? Or are you looking elsewhere and find interesting things to pursue? But Jesus said many false teachers are going to arise. Some will do miracles and are going to deceive people. As we get closer to the end of the age, we're going to see an increased activity on the part of Satan and his human instruments. What do you mean human instruments? Keep your fingers here in Matthew 24. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Very sobering chapter, but these are things we need to be aware of. These are things we're going to be seeing even more of in the months and the time that we have left before Jesus Christ returns. I encourage you maybe read the whole chapter when you go home. Paul is talking here, verse 1, he says, Oh, that you would bear with me a little bit in my folly. Now just listen to me for a minute, he says, while I talk. And indeed you do bear with me, for I'm jealous for you. With a godly jealousy, I betrothed you to one husband, that is to Jesus Christ. I've been involved in your conversion, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached... Or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may bear with it. In other words, you're going to have to deal with the consequences if you buy into these things. I was just thinking last night and this morning as I was going over this, we've tended to apply this to Protestant preachers and Catholic preachers. But, you know, the Muslim religion is becoming more and more active around the world. And they do believe in Jesus Christ, not as the Son of God, but as a wise man who will assist their Messiah. (laughs) So they're preaching about a different Jesus. And the spirit that leads Muslims is a very different spirit. There's been articles in the news recently about uh, Muslim activities in Nigeria, one of the most populous nations in Africa, and also in the Sudan, where these Muslim radicals are sweeping through villages, lighting fires to their, their huts, screaming, Allah Akbar, God is great, burning down the villages, chasing out Christians and other people that are there, and another Muslim colonist come in and take over the property. There's an ethnic cleansing that's going on there. Very different spirit, but they do believe in Jesus Christ, being led by a different spirit. And their gospel is if you die as a martyr, you wind up in heaven with, what is it, 72 virgins or whatever. I'm not sure what the ladies look forward to. But this is a very different gospel. But what we're told here in Scripture, things are going to happen that are going to disrupt this world. And then Paul talks about false apostles in verse 13. Deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers, human instruments of Satan the devil 
also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. But what we're told in Scripture is Satan does have human instruments that he will work through. Some of them use Jesus Christ's name. Some of them use other names, preaching different gospels. But these are things we're going to be seeing more of in the years just ahead of us, the months just ahead of us. Then back in Matthew 24, he talks about you hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's what we hear about today. We're worried about war breaking out in the Middle East, about war breaking out in Southeast Asia between the Chinese and the Japanese, or between the Chinese and the Filipinos over some little islands over there. And then wars in other parts of the world. These are things that are happening today that threaten the stability of the world. It also talks about nation will rise against nation. We've gone over this before. The word is ethnos. So ethnic violence is going to increase around the world, one group against another group. You've got this in the Muslim world, the Sunnis against the Shiites fighting each other. And you've got it in other parts of the world with other religious groups and other political groups after each other. But we're going to see an increase in these things. Then it talks about uh, <clears throat> all these things. Let's see. For a nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. This is one kingdom or one uh, nation as we look at them today against another. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. So we're talking about natural disasters are going to increase on a global scale. Droughts and famines, food shortages, disease epidemics, earthquakes, And these may be above ground that shake buildings all over the place. They may be below the ocean that generate tsunamis, as we've seen a number of different places around the world. Fires, different parts of the world. Buildings collapses or bridges collapsing, various things like that. These things are going to increase. There's an article, I think, in the paper just recently in Charlotte talking about the crumbling infrastructure in America. How in some places they have gas lines exploded and wiped out whole neighborhoods. But we're going to be seeing more things like this, and people are going to wonder, where is God? You know, Dr. Meredith was doing a program recently, a sermon on that. Where is God? Why is he allowing these things? Because God is letting people do whatever they want to do. And we're going to come to the point where we're, people are going to be looking for someone from somewhere to intervene with a strong hand. And straighten things out because it's going to get out of control. What we're told here in Matthew 24, verse 8, says these are the beginning of sorrows. This is just the start. The main event or the main events are yet to come. Other translations say this is like the labor pains before a woman gives birth. You're not quite sure when it's going to start, but when it starts... Usually there's going to be a baby, (laughs) but it may be false labor. And then you wait for another couple days or whatever. But these events, the first four things that we've talked about here, are described as the beginning of sorrows. But you'll notice in verse 14, something else is going to be happening along with these disasters that are developing and the problems that are developing 
It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So contemporary with, these things are developing. The gospel of the kingdom of God is going to be preached in all the world. And that's what we are striving to do today. The Catholic Church is not preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The Catholic Church has taught over the years that they are the kingdom of God. And when you read about the popes in the Middle Ages, you wonder how on earth... (laughs) Could they even think about being the kingdom of God with all the stuff that these guys were doing? Protestant churches are not preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. They preach that the kingdom of God is this warm feeling in your heart. And you give your heart to the Lord, you'll be in the kingdom of God. That's not what the early church taught. That's not what we are teaching. That's not what the Bible teaches today. But contemporarily with... These major events we're going to see developing on the world scene is going to be the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God very powerfully on a global scale. It's going to be interesting to see what doors God opens for us to do that. What we need to be remembering, too, because of the stuff that's on the Internet, the kingdom of God is not the only aspect of the gospel. The kingdom of God is not the only aspect of the gospel. And I would encourage you to do some studies on that. Maybe mark some of these things down in your Bible. You turn to Acts chapter 8, verses 5 and 12. You read about what Philip was preaching about when he went down to Samaria. He was preaching about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ, as we heard in the sermonette, came to this earth to become the Savior of the world. And as Jesus Christ, when he returns to this earth, he is actually going to begin saving the world. That is good news. That is exciting news. That is part of the gospel. You can read in Acts chapter 20 when Paul spoke to the elders in Ephesus, verses 20 through about 27. He was preaching about the gospel of the kingdom. He was preaching about mercy. He was preaching about salvation. He was preaching about Jesus Christ, that that is part of the gospel that Philip was preaching and part of the gospel that Paul was preaching there in Ephesus. Then you go to Acts 28, a couple verses there, 23 and 31, Paul was in Rome preaching the gospel of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. And this idea that Jesus Christ can't be part of the gospel is nuts. It's insane. It's crazy. And yet there are people trying to promote that today. All you have to do is read the book. Turn, if you would, to Romans, just to notice. You know, I've talked to people about these things that believe something else, and they, they just look you kind of in the eye, and they can't come up with any answers. Because these things are in the scriptures, in Romans, chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. The gospel here is about Jesus Christ. That without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Down in verse 15, So as much as in me... I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, 
for it is the power of God to salvation. Salvation is part of the gospel. Salvation means to be saved from destruction. And we're looking to Jesus Christ for our salvation. We're all sinners. We don't deserve eternal life. But because Jesus Christ gave his life for us while we were sinners, we can ask for forgiveness. This is part of the gospel. It's exciting. You know, if you get a speeding ticket, maybe going home today, and maybe you're going 60 miles an hour down the road out here in a 45-mile-an-hour zone, you get picked up on radar. You get a ticket for $150. And then you get a phone call and said, your ticket has already been paid. How would you feel? Why'd you do that? I didn't ask you to do that. And my dad did that one time. He got arrested for getting in an argument with his neighbor. And then his neighbor paid his bail. He actually wound up in jail. My dad said, I'm not going to pay him back. I didn't ask him to pay him. I try not to follow my dad's footsteps and everything. (laughs) But brethren... It's good news when we understand our sins have been paid for. (coughs) That is part of the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and then for the Greek. In 1 Corinthians, notice again. What Paul is talking about, you can't read these scriptures and then come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ and talking about him is not part of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, in verse 17 and 18, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Jesus Christ died. He was crucified so that we can have our sins forgiven. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel involves salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, first couple of verses there. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. So he's writing here to the Gentile church primarily in Corinth. I declare to you the gospel which I first preached to you, which you also received and which you stand, by which you are also saved. You're saved by the gospel that is being preached. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, for I delivered to you first of all, That which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, was buried, that he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and he was seen by Cephas and by the Twelve. So he's talking about the gospel, the fact that Jesus died, was resurrected, paid for our sins. And you might ask, why doesn't he say anything about the gospel of the kingdom of God here? The answer is, that wasn't the question. (laughs) The issue was uh, whether or not there's going to be a resurrection. And what Paul is saying is, that's fundamental. That's basic. Yes, there's going to be a resurrection. That's part of the gospel. The reason he doesn't address the kingdom of God here, that wasn't the question that was asked. But then if you go back to Acts chapter 20, 
In Acts chapter 28, he does talk about the kingdom of God. So for somebody to say that the gospel is only about the kingdom of God and not about Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, they don't know what they're talking about. And one of the arguments that is brought up is the living church of God is going down the same path that the worldwide church of God went down because the worldwide church of God used 1 Corinthians 15. What people that bring up that argument don't understand is the worldwide church of God brought up that argument and they said the real gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15 because they were trying to do away with the kingdom of God being part of the gospel. And Mr. Dukach made some statement about, you know, the gospel is not about uh, uh, a beast power coming up in Europe. The gospel was never about a beast power coming up in Europe. That was a warning. That was not part of the gospel. So he's mixing apples and oranges, and some people get mixed up following these ideas. Now, why am I going through this? Because all this stuff is on the Internet, and these questions come up from time to time. Well, you're going the same way worldwide went. No, we aren't. Not by any means. You know, one of the reasons I came into the church was I heard the gospel about the coming kingdom of God, and I'm still looking forward to that. And I'm still preaching about that today. And I don't anticipate anybody taking my crown with a different gospel. Don't let anybody take yours. But this is something we need to be watching. People are going to have different ideas about the gospel. People make accusations, but you need to understand what the gospel is. You know, a couple of years ago, I think I gave a sermon. Dr. Meredith gave a sermon. Mr. Ames has given sermons and Bible studies on it. But somehow, some have missed the point. You know, prove these things for yourself so you're not blown away or blown around by every wind of doctrine. Some other things to watch for, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's go there for just a little bit. Notice what Paul is talking about. In fact, let's go to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 first, because Paul is talking about some of the same things in both these letters. And he's talking about events that are going to occur just before the end of the age. He says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, the day that Jesus Christ returns... It's going to come as a thief in the night. If you knew, if you got a phone call this afternoon, watch out tonight about 2 o'clock in the morning because I'm a thief and I'm going to break into your house. You wouldn't be surprised if somebody starts rapping on the door and breaks the window about 2 o'clock in the morning. In fact, if you had thought about it, you probably have a police car sitting around the corner. So you wouldn't be surprised. There wouldn't be a thief in the night sneaking in. That would be a big announcement. But Paul says here, the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night. People are not going to expect it. They go to sleep. They'll be looking around doing other things. And when they say peace and safety, now he's talking not talking about people in the church. Paul is talking to the church, but he's not talking about things in the church. He's talking about things that are going to be happening in the world. When they say peace and safety, when men or when people or when the news talks about peace and peace efforts, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Again, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. 
But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. In other words, don't be in the dark. Keep your eyes open. Stay alert. So Paul is talking about the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night. He's not talking about what's happening in the church. He's talking about what's happening in the world. Now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Exactly the same topic. And he's not just writing about things that are going to happen in the church. He's writing to the church about things that are going to be happening in the world. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together to him, the resurrection, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter. And some people are putting on the Internet letters that Dr. Meredith wrote or that uh, somebody else wrote, and they take them out of context and try and make it say something that it doesn't say. Somebody puts an old sermon of, uh, I think, Mr. Gwynn's on on the um, Internet here recently, where Mr. Gwynn was talking about the falling away was in the church. But he gave the the sermon about eight or ten years ago. He didn't have the opportunity of discussions we have been through in recent years. And I think Mrs. Gwynn was even asked a question, is the church teaching something different than what John taught? And she said, time gives us a different perspective. What John was talking about eight or ten years ago, we've come to realize there's a bigger picture. They put a sermon of Mr. Carl McNair's on the Internet, where Carl was talking about the kingdom of God as the gospel. And they're trying to say, see, Mr. McNair was understood the real gospel. It was about the kingdom of God. But again, I have no doubts in my mind that Carl would not be right with us. And what we're talking about today, the kingdom of God is, is the gospel and also <laughs> the message about Jesus Christ. But they take these things and they try and make them driving wedges into the church as if we're preaching something different. These people are out to divide. They're not out to promote the truth. They've got a, an agenda that they're working with. And they don't understand that they can be very sincere and still be instruments that Satan can use, as we read in Second Corinthians 11, that Satan has his ministers, and he will use them unconsciously. They will be unconscious that they're actually being used, but they'll be very sincere. For those of you that are older, you can remember the comment that Mr. Armstrong used to make on numerous occasions. He said, you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Think about that. You can be sincere, but you can also be sincerely wrong. And the only way to know is to pray about it, humbly read the Scriptures for what they actually say and not what somebody's trying to make them say. But in verse 3, it says, Let no one deceive you. Now, Paul is talking to the church but he's not limiting himself here to things that are just happening in the church. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day the return of Jesus Christ will not come until the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, most of the commentaries will tell you that these two events are events that are going to have to come together. One is not going to happen 10, 15, 20 years earlier, but they're going to come together. 
and it's falling away. The word is apostasy or apostasia. And it can mean falling away from the truth. It can also mean falling away from a previous position. You leave a position that you once had, as also translated in many modern translations, as a rebellion or a great rebellion that's going to come. And that rebellion will include what happened in the church of God. But it's going to be bigger than that. It's going to be bigger than that. You know, what, what people are missing when they want to limit this falling away or rebellion to only the church of God, they're, they're basically blind to reality. When you look at what is happening in America, when you look at what is happening in the UK, you look at what's happening in New Zealand, you look at what's happening in Australia, in the Israelite nations around the world that God called to be lights to the world. They're literally turning away from God. I've got a book here that we've got up in the library. It's entitled God and America's Leaders. It's got quotations here from George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, um, John Adams, of what the founding fathers believed and how they thought. And you have to ask yourself, would President Obama say these same things? or some of the other presidents that we've had. George Washington said it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. That was George Washington. Impossible to govern the world without God and the Bible. A couple of other ones here quickly. Thomas Jefferson made a statement. He said, and he was probably, he was a deist, but it's interesting he had some, some other things to say. He said, I have always said, and I always will say, that the studious perusal of the script, of the sacred volume of the Bible will make better citizens, better fathers, and better husbands. And yet today, we have laws that prohibit teachers from reading the Bible in schools. This is where we've come to today. Samuel Adams, a Massachusetts delegate to the Continental Congress, he says there are instances of, I would say, an almost astonishing providence in our favor. In other words, God has been with us so that we may truly say that it is not our own arm which has saved us. The hand of heaven appears to have led us on to be perhaps humble instruments and means in the great providential dispensation which is completing. In other words, God has a plan and a purpose that he's given us, the American nation, the opportunity to be part of. A number of other quotations. Talking about the founding fathers, the values that this nation was built upon. Not only this nation, but the the British, the Australians, New Zealanders. You get down to New Zealand and the comment down there is, we're not a religious nation. We're not. Say the same thing in Australia. Same thing's happening up in Canada. I'm going to read you something. This was a letter that someone wrote in talking about the United Kingdom. This appears to be a person who is not a British person said, I have just completed careful reading and study of several of your amazing booklets, like the 14 signs announcing Christ's returns, and have learned a lot. 
Thank you for sharing your clear wisdom of matters spiritual and biblical with us. As far as the political leaders go, the UK is currently having a prime minister as a spoiled, young, posh brat. With no previous leadership or real work experience in any job or workplace, this man is openly promoting homosexuality and gay marriage. He is pushing to redefine the institute of marriage, or so he claims, so that gay marriage will be legally recognized between lesbians and homosexuals in the U.K. Secularism is greatly encouraged in the U.K. by all political parties. It truly amazes me the way the English people are accepting this departure from God's path. Now, most of the British never kept the Sabbath, never kept the holy days, didn't understand the full plan of God. But they exported missionaries all around the world who translated the Bible into native languages, who taught people about God, taught people about the Bible, taught people about Jesus Christ, even though they didn't understand everything. What is happening today is many developing countries that were converted to quote-unquote Christianity are now sending missionaries back to the U.K. to reconvert the mother country. They recognize what's happening. Yet some in our own fellowships don't seem to recognize what is happening in America today, how we're going down the tubes, how we have jettisoned values that we used to have. You know, I grew up in a small town in Ohio. On Sunday, almost everyone went to church. We had a Presbyterian church. We had a Methodist church, a Baptist church, a Lutheran church, uh, some other churches, but almost everyone was in church. That's not the case today. That's not the case today. We knew then that it was wrong to commit adultery. And most of us knew we shouldn't be smoking. See, these were values that were promoted in this quote-unquote pagan little town. <laughs> no, they were Christian as they knew it. They weren't Buddhists. They weren't Hindus. They weren't atheists. But even that little town is turning away from what it used to be. This is what's happening in our countries today. Would you notice just a couple of other scriptures that tie into Second Thessalonians 2. If you go back to... Um, <clears throat> see, where do we want to go here? Let's go first of all to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah has a series of prophecies of why the Israelite nations are going to be in trouble. You know, he talks about in Jeremiah 30, a time of Jacob's trouble is coming. Whenever the people of Israel are going to be in trouble for various reasons. We'll not read through all of chapter 2, but chapter 2 is a catalog of God's case against the nation of Israel and Judah for that matter. In verse 19, it says, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. In other words, you're going to reap what you have sown. You're going to reap what you have sown. Know, therefore, and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you. 
You know, why would our president say, whatever we once were, we are no longer a Christian nation, but a nation of Hindus and Buddhists and atheists and whatever. He recognizes the direction this nation is going. The Bible said it's a bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you. Why would leaders say today that it doesn't bother me uh, to have same-sex marriage in the country? Well, <laughs> it bothers God. You see, the fear of God is not in us today. We want to tolerate everything. The word here for backslidings is masuba, M-S-U-B-A. In the Hebrew, that means apostasy. It means turning away, falling away, turning against God. In fact, the New American Standard Version actually translates this. Your apostasies will reprove you. Your falling away will reprove you. So Jeremiah talks about these things. Hosea chapter 8 and verse 1. Again, Hosea is talking about what's going to happen to the Israelite nations and why it's going to happen. So this falling away, this rebellion against God, we saw it happen in the church. We're going to see it happen in our nation. We're going to see it happen on a global scale. Verse 1, chapter 8 of Hosea, Set the trumpet to your mouth. And trumpets were blown as a sign of warning. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel's going to be punished because they've transgressed the covenant that God made with their forefathers. Where he said, I will be your God, you will be my people. I'm going to give you my laws, they will set you apart from all the nations of the world. And when God does that to a people, and then they thumb their nose at God and turn away from him. It's not going to be a good thing. They're going to reap what they've sown. Because they've transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Well, we think it's all right for same-sex marriage. We think it's all right to commit adultery. We think it's all right to commit fornication. After all, everybody's sown little wild oats. Ha, 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 ha. No, God chose the Israelite peoples to use them as a light to the world, and they've not been the light that they're supposed to be. He's calling us to be part of a spiritual Israel. We have a responsibility to set an example and to be a light to the world, and if we don't do it, then our hope and dream of being in the kingdom of God is, is really kind of a pipe dream. Hosea chapter 8 <clears throat> Verse 12, I have written for him, Israel, the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. All those dietary laws. You can't eat shrimp. You can't eat clams and oysters on the half shell. Those slimy things that sit on the bottom of the, the, the bays and estuaries and go, all kind of gunk that comes by. And they close the clam beds and the oyster beds after there's been a big rain and the sewers overflow. <laughs> and say so you can't harvest those things for another week or two until they clean themselves out because they've been sucking up a bunch of bacteria, viruses and stuff like that. Now God in his wisdom said don't eat certain things. 
But today we look at these things as strange, bizarre, crazy, old-fashioned. No, the Israelite nations are going to be punished. The Bible tells us that very clearly because they've broken the laws and turned away. Go back now to uh, um, Daniel chapter 8 and verse 23. Just a number of verses that give us some perspective here. Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, 24. Right before this was talking about the four divisions of Alexander the Great's empire. It says, In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, and it talks about a person that is probably um, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, but he was a type. He was a type of the little horn in Daniel chapter 7. And when you read about him, he was proud. He was a double-dealing person. He claimed to be divine. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he built a statue or an idol and had people who tried to have people worship it. He tried to uh, basically stamp out the religion of the Jews. They couldn't have the Old Testament scriptures under penalty of death. And if parents circumcised their children, they could be killed. You know, the same thing is beginning to happen again. In San Francisco, they had a thing on the ballot recently where they wanted to outlaw circumcision. In a German court, they tried to outlaw circumcision and punish people for doing it. Antiochus did the same thing. They were were going backwards. It was interesting that Antiochus died suddenly. Nebuchadnezzar went insane for some of the things that he was doing. And the person that fulfills these scriptures is going to have a very bad ending too. But it's talking about a time when the transgressors have reached their fullness. I think the the Amplified Version of the Bible says fullness is talking about when wickedness exceeds the limits of God's mercy. When wickedness exceeds the limits of God's mercy, when things get really bad, God is going to intervene. He's going to send Jesus Christ. So there's one other scripture talking about a global perspective here. In Isaiah chapter 24. Now all these scriptures are talking about a time when the rebellion against God, people turn away from God. And this is a much bigger scale than something that's happened in the worldwide church of God. Isaiah 24 through Isaiah 27 is called the little apocalypse. In other words, it's a series of prophecies about a judgment that's going to occur on a global basis. In verse 1, it says, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste. In other words, he's going to be judging the entire world. Down in verse 5, the earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws. They've despised the laws of God, changed the ordinance, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the curse has devoured the earth. Mankind is going to be judged. 
when the transgressors reach their fullness, when things get really bad, Jesus Christ is going to return and straighten things out. So we've seen a rebellion in the church. We've seen it. We're seeing it happen in America. We're seeing it happen in other Israelite countries. And we're going to see it happen on a global basis. Revelation 13, something else to watch for. Talks about two beasts, two individuals that are going to play a major role on the world stage. And it's going to be pretty obvious when these things begin to happen. Again, Second Thessalonians 2 talked about a man of sin being revealed. Revelation 13 talks about a beast coming up out of the sea. And the dragon is going to give this person his power. And the world is going to be mesmerized. The world will marvel when they see the wound of this beast being healed. And if the Europeans get around to resurrecting the Roman Empire, something very obvious, you know, when they signed the agreement to establish the euro, they said, uh, we felt like Romans the day we signed this agreement. They know what they're doing. They're reaching back into history to legitimize what they're doing. But the Bible says we're going to see an individual, a political individual, empowered by Satan. And the world's going to follow this individual. Then it talks about, in verse 11, another beast coming up out of the earth that had two horns, like a lamb, but spoke like the dragon, and causes the earth and those to dwell on it to worship the beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And this individual is going to perform great signs and wonders. And several years ago, Mr. Hernandez and I were able to visit Fatima, a little town in the central part of Portugal, where several little kids back, I think, in the 20s or whatever the date was, in the month of May, saw a vision of Mary in the sky. And she made some prophecies. Now, if you go there, they've got a big cathedral there, a big open area, a big plaza, where they can get 10,000 people in it or more. And they were building a 10,000-seat auditorium there. And a lot of people go there in the month of May because they're hoping to see a miracle again. It's a big Catholic shrine. If one of these days, when everybody's there in May, and all of a sudden they see something happening in the sky, this is going to have an incredible impact on people. But the Bible talks about a time when an individual is going to perform great signs and then point people that look to him to the beast. And these two individuals are going to have an impact on the world. These are things we need to be watching for and shouldn't be surprised. Revelation 17 and 18 talks about a harlot. It's going to ride the beast, very similar to what happened in the Holy Roman Empire, where the Pope in Rome kind of had pushing matches and pulling matches with the Holy Roman Empire as princes up in Germany. And they were vying for power. And the Pope had his own armies. So did the princes in Germany. And they got a tug of war back and forth. But it talks about this harlot is going to ride the beast, guide the beast. And the Pope will again play a role probably in guiding whatever comes out of Europe over there. These things are going to happen. It talks about ten kings in Revelation 17 will give their power to the beast. 
And what we're seeing in Europe today is more and more pressure on nations if they want to be part of the euro to surrender more sovereignty to the central government in Brussels. So giving their power, surrendering their sovereignty, if they want European money, then they've got to turn over some of their power. So all these pressures are building in exactly the way the Bible prophecy said it would, and these prophecies were given about 2,000 years ago. And yet we're living at a period of time when these things are coming together. And that should sober us a lot, sober all of us. One other thing to be watching for, the Bible talks about a sudden demise of the Western world. A sudden demise of the mess of the Western world. You pick this up back in uh, Deuteronomy 27. Actually, Deuteronomy 28. These are the blessings and the cursings. The blessings and the cursings. Deuteronomy 28, verse 20. It says, if you... It will come to pass if you disobey the voice of the Lord, verse 15. A number of things are going to happen. Verse 20, it says, The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, rebuke, and all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly, until you perish suddenly of all your doings in which you've forsaken the Lord. A number of other prophecies, maybe just jot them down quickly, but I encourage you to follow up on these things. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 14. Isaiah 9, 14. Isaiah 29, verse 5. 29, verse 5. And Isaiah 30, verse 13. Three prophecies in Isaiah that talk about your downfall is going to come suddenly, in a moment. It's going to catch people by surprise. Then a couple of scriptures in Jeremiah 6, 26, Jeremiah 6, verse 26, and Jeremiah 15, verse 8. Half a dozen prophecies that say your downfall, Israel, is going to come suddenly. You're not going to expect it. I referred a number of times to some quotes by Neil Ferguson. He's a British economist, teaches at Harvard, and he is mentioned in a numerous Occasions is that America's downfall could come suddenly. An economic collapse of some type or another. But he's, he's not a nut. He's not a crazy person, a very perceptive individual. And he's made statements. He says, look, I've lived in a, a, a declining country, and it's no fun. <laughs> and he doesn't want to see America do the same thing. But here are sober, sobering voices saying the same thing. But, brethren, these are things we need to be watching for. Final thing to watch for, Daniel 11, verses 40 to 45, the king of the south and the king of the north. You know, a year or so ago, everybody in America was all excited about the Arab Spring that was sweeping through the Arab world and how all these dictatorships are going to turn into democracy. Hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. You know, Muslim fundamentalists are active all across North Africa and all up through the Middle East. And they're basically laying plans to take over with Sharia law. As one source said, the Arab Spring is going to turn into a real headache for Europe and America and the West. 
The Bible has been talking about this literally for 25, 2600 years. That at the end of the age, we're going to see a king of the south pushing against the king of the north. King of the north is going to retaliate and move into the Middle East. This appears to be what is coming. These are things to watch for. Let's conclude talking about a few things. What can we do to prepare for the return of Jesus Christ? You know, we have the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, where it talks about five were wise, five were foolish, but they all slumbered. They all slumbered. They all went to sleep. The five wise had a stock of oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And God tells us God gives his spirit to whom? Those who obey him. Acts 5.32. The implication is those that were low in God's spirit weren't obeying God. They weren't close to God. So we're told there to watch and be ready. Don't go to sleep. Don't get involved with the cares of the world. Go back and read Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. You have four different groups. Three of them weren't very wise. They got focused on personal trials. They got focused on the cares of this world. Well, I'm missing out on this. I'm missing out on that. They weren't focused on the big picture. What can we do to get ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Let me give you several suggestions here. In Luke 21, verse 36, it says, Watch and pray always. Watch and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that are going to come. Now, how do we pray? God, don't let me go through the tribulation. Save me. Or do we pray like Daniel did, Daniel chapter 9? He said, God, be merciful on us. We have sinned. We have turned our back on you. God, please be merciful on us as a people. Can we pray with the compassion that Jesus Christ prayed? Matthew 23, verse 37, where he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times would I have gathered you to me? Like a mother hen gathers her chicks, I was here to help you, here to teach you here to show you, and you would have nothing of it. You know, most of us have had a, the privilege and the opportunity to grow up in the United States where we've had free education, where we've had religious freedom, and other countries have had some of that too. But are we thankful for that? Do we care as we look and see what's happening to our country turning its back on God, wanting to chart its own course, throwing away the privilege that God has given to us as a people. I want you to be my people. I want you to be a light to the world. And then we scoff at the whole thing. We don't need God. We don't need the Bible. These are some things to pray about. What would you like to change in the world tomorrow, in the coming kingdom of God? How can you start now to get ready to do some of these things? Your Daniel prayed three times a day. David prayed three times a day. Maybe set that as a goal for yourself, to pray three times a day. Talk to God about some of these things that you see. Talk to him about the coming kingdom of God. You know, the model prayer says, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on this earth. And we're looking forward to that time. 
Number two, study God's Word. Study it daily. You know, in Deuteronomy 17, we're told there that the king was to make a copy of the law, a personal copy, and then to study it daily. You know, David says in Psalm 119, 97, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day long. David was not walking around with his face in the Bible, but he was thinking about it. Something came up. He'd be thinking, what's the principle that I need to apply to this particular situation? 2 Timothy 2 talks about studying the Word of God so you can explain the Word of God, that you can apply it correctly. And it says, avoid foolish things. Avoid foolish controversies. Number three, strive to obey God's Word. Read it, study it, prove it, and then do it. Jesus said, if you love me, I'm happy. No, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And this wasn't some new thing. Go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. The Israelites were told to do the same thing. Seek God, love him, keep his commandments. God hasn't changed. Revelation 22, verses 12 to 15, Jesus says, I come quickly. Blessed are those who do his commandments. We've got to do these things, brethren. We can't play games. can't play games with God. Obey the word of God. Strive to do it with all your might. Number four, meditate on God's word. Again, David's comment in Psalm 119, verses 97, where he says, I meditate on your word all day long. I think about it. I look for applications. Maybe before you go to bed at night, ask yourself, what have I learned today? What examples have I seen of bad examples that I don't want to follow? What examples have I seen of good examples that I do want to follow? Make some notes to yourself. Meditate on the word of God. Maybe read through Psalm 119. Go home and do that this evening. David was called a man after God's own heart. You find the attitude that David had in Psalm 119. He says, teach me, show me, help me understand what is there. And also in verse 37, he says, turn my eyes away from worthless things. Maybe ask yourself, what worthless things do I look at? How much TV do I watch? How many you know, romantic novels do I read? How many football games do I watch? Well, I like to watch football games from time to time. But, I mean, these are the advice. This is the advice we're given. Turn my eyes away from looking at foolish things, worthless things. Number five. Strive to nourish God's spirit. Nourish God's spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.16, a memory scripture. It says the inward man, the inward person, needs to be renewed daily. We're praying every day. We're studying every day. We're meditating on the word of God every day. And some of us, and myself included from time to time, we try and live on spiritual fumes. You know, if the gasoline in your gas tank runs low, you can go on fumes not very far. You've got to have gas in the tank. 
We've got to do our part in praying and studying and meditating on the Word of God, nourishing God's Spirit. Because if we're nourishing God's Spirit, people should see in our lives the fruit of God's Spirit. Galatians 5, the love, the concern for other people, the joy, the peace, the peace of mind. You know, if you're on edge all the time and yelling at people, it's not the fruit of God's Spirit. Fruit of a very different spirit. We've got to nourish God's Spirit to be led by it. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, it says, Don't quench the Spirit. And God's Spirit can be quenched. You know, if this carpet catches on fire, I've got a glass of water here, and I can throw it on the fire, and it quenches, it puts it out. If we're not praying regularly, if we're not studying, if we're not striving to exercise the fruits of God's Spirit, there ain't going to be no fruits of God's Spirit. There'll be another spirit there. You might want to catch yourself. If you're flying off at somebody, going to argue with somebody, get in their face, or do something like that, we've got to realize that's not God's spirit. James chapter 3, it talks about a person with God's spirit is easily entreated. What does that mean? Somebody comes up and says, look, I've got something against you. You say, yeah? (laughs) Say that a little louder. Let me rearrange your face. No, an easily entreated person will say, you have a concern? Let's talk about it. In spite of the fact that somebody's coming at you like a bulldozer. Nourishing God's spirit. Number six, recognize and resist Satan and his attitudes and his temptations. You can read about that in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 9. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 9. He says, watch out for Satan. Now, you can't watch out for him unless you know how to recognize what he's trying to do. He'll try and get you upset. He'll try and get you filled with doubts. He'll try and get you in a very negative attitude. He'll try and make you argumentative. He'll try and make words come out of your mouth that uh, you realize once it's out there, you, you can't get it back. It's gone. Recognize and resist Satan and his attitudes. And number seven, we're told in 2 Peter 3.18 to grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we can't just sit on our laurels. We can't say, well, we've made these decisions now and it's going to be this forever. No, we're going to grow in various ways. We've done that over the last couple of years and some people don't want to grow in spite of the fact that you go to the Scriptures and say, look, here it is, but, and they look right over the Scriptures. We've got to grow. We've been called to become kings and priests, kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God, civil rulers, religious teachers. This is what we've been called to do, and we've got to prepare to do that. Are you prepared to explain the meanings of the holy days? Are you prepared to explain about tithing? Can you explain in a very positive way what the purpose of human life is and why it's going to be better to be in the kingdom of God than to be in heaven with 72 virgins and a bunch of waterfalls in a way that's going to be exciting to people? They realize, (laughs) I missed out. I was looking in the wrong direction. You know, Jesus did that to his disciples. 
did that to the Apostle Paul, they turned around, changed direction, got excited. Study how to be a leader, how to be a servant leader. A lot of information about these things. We have some classes on these things at Living University. Read. Read widely. I remember a speech class that Dr. Meredith gave back in Ambassador College years ago. And the phrase he used is still with me. He says, a stream rises no higher than its source. He got that from someplace. (laughs) But if we never elevate our source by reading and watching and learning, we're not going to grow, and the congregations we serve are not going to grow, and the people that we lead will not grow. And when you read, there's a proverb in verse, chapter 13, verse 20. It says, if you walk with wise people, you'll become wise. You can get into the minds of people when you read books that they've written, if they're good. Observe. Notice what works. Notice what doesn't work. Brethren, the next major event in God's plan of salvation is going to be the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. It's pictured by the Feast of Trumpets. Jesus is now preparing a place for you. Think about that. Jesus Christ is preparing a place for you, whether you're a young person or an older person. He's preparing you to play a role in the coming kingdom of God. You're going to have an opportunity to turn the world right side up to literally change the world for the better and teach people God's way of life. We've been warned in the Scriptures, watch. We've been warned in the Scriptures, prepare and get ready. Because one of these days, as world events continue to build, this world is going to hear a trumpet. And Jesus Christ is going to say, ready or not, here I come. Brethren, we need to be ready. So let's prepare so that when Christ returns, we're going to be ready for that return. It's going to be a very exciting day. Let's not miss out because we were asleep or we just weren't ready.